Hello, who are listening to the Greekonomics podcast. I am Donald Trump, and let's begin the episode of the best podcast in the world. Thanks, Donald. Hey, everybody. This is Alkis, and you're listening to the Greekonomics podcast, the show that explores how social, technological, and economic conditions will affect the businesses of the future with a focus both on the Greek economy and worldwide. Hello. So this is a bonus episode in which I'm going to look through Reddit and search for different questions relating to economics. And then I'm going to try to answer them, you know, give my opinion on that. And this will act as a bonus episode to the normal series of episodes that we that we will be releasing each week. And starting off, the first one was, what are the costs of inflation other than the traditional ones relating to the fact that when inflation exists like right now when you go to the supermarket let's say it's more expensive to buy the typical goods that you would be buying a year ago and of course this is the disadvantage that most people will have in mind when we talk about inflation but there are many other aspects both usually negative about extreme inflation, uncontrolled inflation like we're having right now with inflation upwards to like the range of six, seven, eight, nine percent in usually the most economically developed countries like in Europe, in France, you know, in the US. And but there are many other disadvantages other than the simple argument relating to the fact that the prices that households buy are more expensive, therefore a larger percentage of the income that they earn will be spent on the same goods which are more expensive but in order to address this question i would like firstly to define what is inflation because sometimes it is a term that is also misinterpreted sometimes but inflation is a sustained increase in the average price level while the inflation rate is the percentage change in the average price level between two periods and the way we measure inflation at least in most countries right now in the us they use some other measures other than the CPI, which is the Consumer Price Index, which is the main tool that they use to measure inflation. But the CPI is a weighted average of the prices of goods that a typical consumer in a country buys per period. And this basket, these items are determined from surveys that are passed on to households every few years. And therefore, the the, the basket of goods remains fixed for some time. And the price of each product is multiplied by the weight, which is the expenditures on this good eye, let's say the expenditures on haircuts, divided by the total expenditure of this household. And the base year is 100, which makes it easier to compare it through different years and therefore calculate the CPI. And there are many limitations to the way the CPI is calculated and therefore inflation as well and the main arguments are that because it is as i mentioned before the average of the prices of the goods that the typical consumer in a country spends per period therefore it does it refers to an average person which is a fictional person it's not you and me it's someone that is both poor both rich 
both in uh, he both lives in like Athens if we're referring to Greece and both lives in Kalamata you know it's so we cannot infer direct uh, information about specific groups like how are older people affected by the rate of inflation the the inflation rate is different for me and different for another person that is 65 years old living in Thessaloniki for instance and and also there is the quality bias which essentially means that the quality of a product may increase proportionately more than the price increase of this specific product let's say a classic example is the one with vehicle tires with the cars with the, with the tires we buy for our car and if we buy a new set of tires that for which the price has increased 20% but then the tires last 50% more then the higher the inflation let's say of 20% this is a made up example is not that accurate because the quality has actually increased so we're gaining more so we're paying more to in order to gain even more from from the increased quality of this product and also there's the new product bias new products are slow to enter the basket of goods because this is fixed for some time and then it is again calculated after some years and the problem is that for instance with Spotify and Netflix which were recently released recently created they were pretty late to be included in the in the CPI as it takes as I mentioned as I mentioned before some years for them to be added there and even though they represent a portion of one's income they were not included and therefore do not the basket is not accurate about what the typical consumer buys in a country and this is also true for the way for for the place also where people shop and this is called the retail outlet bias and because statistical agencies might only check rick and mortar stores these are the physical stores like you go to Lifado to or uh, these are the shops that you go in person to shop and statistical agencies have historically usually uh, went to the brick and mortar stores to check about the prices and the price increases but people might be mostly shopping on the internet where prices are cheaper or more expensive but usually they are cheaper and this is also one way that the CPI overestimates inflation therefore this is another issue with the CPI because it needs to calculate where where do people actually buy these products because brick and mortar stores might not actually be the place that most people shop in a specific country and lastly Another thing that renders the, the CPI not that accurate is the substitution bias. And because the weights are fixed, but a product might actually have less importance if its price increases because there are other substitutes. Like if apples increase in price, the CPI will also increase and this will show up as having higher inflation. But what if people start buying pears for instance, that are a substitute, and therefore the impact is not that big from this increase of, of inflation of the CPI. Yet, now moving on to the core issue that this post asked in Ask Economics, the, the Reddit subgroup, and the first one is that uncertainty increases, and this is one of the most important ones in my opinion. And 
because uncertainty increases, this decreases in investment and spending by households. And investment is widely known to be the main factor that drives long-term growth. And therefore, we have lo- lower long-term economic growth prospects and, and unemployment. So there are two problems from this that have emerged just from this one argument. And then another thing is that the purchasing power of fixed income earners like pensioners and wage earners, which are the u- usually poorer people, decrease because they have a fixed contract. They say that I will be paying you $800 a month for the next two, three years, and therefore they are not hedged, they are not protected from inflation, as an entrepreneur or a lawyer could do, like they could raise their prices so they are protected from inflation, which widens income inequality a lot, and I'm not going to dive a lot into that, but I'm pretty sure you can understand why income inequality is very, very bad for the economy and for the growth prospects of the economy and another thing on that on the same token about the the fact that inflation widens income inequality the low income households cannot easily borrow from banks because they have limited so that because they have limited assets to actually place as collateral in these transactions and they are not trusted by the banks because they do not have that mu- that many that much money to actually provide and they are considered as more risky and therefore they are charged a higher interest rate and they have limited opportunities of where to place their savings and money they can only place them in simple bank accounts which often offer a very very low nominal interest rate and thus even negative real interest rates the real interest rate is essentially the nominal interest rate and the, the interest rate that says on the on the tag you know the that the bank says but then if we subtract inflation from this metric, we have the real interest rate. So there is even negative a negative interest rate for these poor people, while the rich the rich people can buy paintings, gold, housing, that might increase more than inflation, which redistributes income from the poor to the rich, widening income inequality. And then. Because inflation is often unexpected, as as we saw this year after the pandemic, I remember Jerome Powell was saying that inflation is transitory, and then we had this unexpected non-transitory inflation. But unexpected inflation hurts lenders and benefits borrowers, because the money that the money that they will they will receive after in the repayment will be worth less because. Essentially, what inflation means is that the money you have, the money you will have in the future, can buy less goods. And therefore, because banks might suspect that, they raise interest rates, which limits consumption and investment, because it's more expensive to borrow, which might further decrease the spending that households make or investment and therefore we have lower economic growth once again. And another thing is also about exports, about the international market. And with inflation, the prices of these domestic goods are more expensive, and therefore exports are less competitive and imports are more attractive, which decreases net exports, which are the exports minus the imports, and therefore it widens the trade deficit, which could also cause the currency to depreciate, and this leads to also more inflation. And another very important point that I think most people don't even know about 
is about the role of prices, which are distorted from from inflation. And inflation is noise. Think of it like the radio signal when you switch to a station that does not catch really well. You hear that, you know, and the price cannot perform its signaling function because suppliers can't know if price increase due to demand or increased inflation. And thus we have a misallocation of resources. But and lastly, another disadvantage of having a high inflation is that it, it, is, it induces people to save less and spend their money now. Because if I, say, if I see that uh, buying this computer now will cost $1,000, but then uh, in two, three months it's going to cost $1,050, I'm going to spend my money now and I won't save, which is very risky. Because if a bad event happens, a recession, people will not have any savings to to protect themselves, and this will increase the negative effect of this recession. And apart from that, there are indeed some advantages of having mild inflation, like not having uh, a f- an eight or a nine percent inflation, but having a two percent inflation can often be very helpful because uh, the CPI usually overestimates inflation, so. If we said if we had zero percent inflation, this would mean that we probably would have negative inflation. We had deflation, which is very very bad. And but mild, mild inflation decreases the real wage, which is once again adjusted for inflation. And since wages are sticky downwards, they cannot easily decrease. Like what are you going to say to your employer? I'm going to decrease what you earn, and this allows firm, firms to. To produce more because the real wages, the wages that they pay employees, which represent a significant cost, will be lower. And it also decreases the real value of debt, both for households and for the government. Like the US currently has accumulated a lot of debt and having inflation actually protects it a lot and decreases, erodes the value of its debt. Okay, so I think I have answered the question about inflation. And now I want to move on to a second question that another person asked uh, in this group. And it is, how are gas prices so high in the U.S. if the U.S. is the largest producer of crude oil? And the data are that per the EIA is that the U.S. produces 18.88 million barrels a day. But then the U.S. consumes 19 point 78 million bar- barrels a day on average and how can we have such a dramatic increases in fuel costs this person is asking and quote unquote i understand the average wages have gone up and supply line issues but given our domestic production i don't see how the result of that is so dramatic does the u.s not use a significant amount of of the oil it produces in other words, is it beyond reasonable to believe we could be almost completely self-sustainable? Okay, so this is the question of the person. I'm, go- I'm going to try to answer it the best I can. And the main argument here is that they have many effects. But future futures prices determine the price of a barrel of oil and are susceptible to the same typical forces of supply and demand. And because markets are driven by expectations, these futures are driven by expectations. The expectation that inflation and consumer demand will continue and remain as strong as it has been in the past year or two 
that prices and this means that people believe that prices will continue to climb and therefore they buy futures and this further increases the prices and another thing i have to say is that oil is a commodity and it is traded globally and it would be impossible for the us to suddenly decide to isolate itself and say we're going to keep our oil and you're going to keep yours and that's the end of the discussion we're not going to import that much we're not going to export because this would create a crisis and a catastrophic market failure and since the us trades a lot of its oil globally the price is determined globally and therefore because the production needs to be traded in the global energy market it is affected by global supply and demand and therefore the prices are also probably affected by the same prices that are on a global scale because of globalization also we are interconnected a crash in the us would affect the crash would also probably create a crash in Europe as seen by the 2008-2009 global financial crisis. And this means that we are all interconnected, but this is the main reason why I believe that gas prices can be so high in the US even though it could supposedly consume most of what it produces and it would be sustain uh, it would sustain itself because it is the largest producer. And the third topic that I'm going to, the third question that I'm going to talk about is what are the impacts of growth on our life? And this was once again posted on Reddit. And I'm going to split it into three categories. And I believe that these are the most important ones to consider. And these are living standards, the environment and the distribution of income, essentially income inequality. And for the living standards growth, which usually we refer to it as GDP per capita because it needs to be adjusted for the size of the population. If we have a greater GDP per capita means that individuals have greater access to goods and services, but it provides no information on distribution. So it has to be inclusive. If not, then it's fragile and undesirable from society's point of view. And it also depends on the environmental impact of this growth because living standards are highly impacted by the environment we live in. If I live in a city that is growing so fast and it's exporting so much stuff, but then I cannot walk outside of my house because it's gray from pollution of the nearby factory, then, of course, this growth is bad for me and for society. And it's also not good if it's jobless. What do I mean by jobless? If it is a result of labor-saving technologies, because improved living standards are closely related to human development. Okay, and about the environment, the relationship is not simple, but it is widely believed that the relationship between environmental degradation and economic growth exhibits an inverted U-shape. So, and this is named the environmental Kuznets curve. And what do I mean by that? Is that at the start, without that much growth, the, the environmental degradation is not that much, but then as we start to grow, usually 
we have a lot more uh, of a negative environmental impact with the fa factories being built. But then after that, after a certain point, after a significant level of income, let's say of national income, the society, the government itself also has more money to actually deal with this environmental degradation and this solves much of this problem and therefore we see that that the start it rises it reaches a climax and then it starts to decrease as we have more growth but many people say that this is a justification to continue business as usual as they say and that it only applies to certain types of pollutants meaning like global local externalities for instance uh, like indoor house pollution from open fires and there's also the effect of international trade because we might have lower pollution here after the a significant level of national income, but then we are importing stuff from elsewhere and we are distributing the pollution elsewhere, which still pollution extends way beyond national borders. And this is a significant issue of, of this relationship that many people believe in. And it not, does not apply to dispersed externalities like carbon emissions and this is essentially the same thing as I mentioned before because it, pollution has no borders and the impact affects everyone. Therefore, if growth neglects environmental impact, then it is unsustainable. And as the UNDP names it, it is futureless. And what can the governments do? There are many things governments can do, but it's usually the typical stuff that I'm sure you might have heard in the news or of people advocating, which is to stop subsidizing fossil fuels and unsustainable industries like fishing, to impose carbon taxes, to use cap-and-trade schemes, to use regulation, to use subsidies and investment in green technology. And the agreements as well should become more ambitious, like the Paris Agreement. Everything should, like, I don't know how, but governments should become more ambitious in achieving their goals. And lastly, another, the third category that I want to talk about is the distribution of income because growth may both increase and decrease inequality. It may decrease it because there is a so-called fiscal dividend from growth because the higher incomes lead to higher tax revenue and thus governments can adopt policies that alleviate poverty and they can create a social safety net, a pension system, they can add more unemployment benefits, they can have transfer payments to the poor they can invest in things that increase agricultural productivity or even education and healthcare for the poor. But still, there is no guarantee that market forces will ensure that the benefits of growth are fairly distributed. But it may also increase it because if it relies on certain skills, if it is concentrated, if it is a result of trade liberalization that has displaced many people, or even if income tax have become less progressive, or we have market-based policies that decrease the role of state of the state and labor unions, which increased on the one hand growth, but on the other hand, we have a more fragile economic environment and a more unequal economic environment, which decreases decreases the equality, or in the same way, it increases income inequality. So yeah, this pretty much sums up what I have to say about these three questions. I really hope it was useful for understanding these different topics that people have questions about, as I felt like it would be much more informative to talk about things that people actually ask on these forums.
and I guess we will meet again on the next episode, which will probably be a normal episode, like the ones released on a weekly basis. And, uh, yep, that concludes today's episode. Thank you for tuning in Greekonomics listeners. And we will meet again in the next episode.